Amen. You may be seated. As we uh, pray this morning, uh, our global focus today is going to be on uh, on the country of Iran, as well as uh, the religion Islam. And you may or may not know this. We've been we've been praying through the world, praying for the world. We did it last year, and we've continued it this year. Uh, but in case you were not aware, uh, there is a great harvest of faith coming from the Muslim world that many within Islam are turning uh, are turning to Jesus, uh, and that's and that's good news. Now that also uh, that also comes at a great cost uh, because as people are uh, as individuals within families are turning to Jesus, uh, they are losing uh, they are losing their families. Uh, their lives are being threatened. Their livelihoods are being threatened uh, in many of these places. Uh, and so while there is uh, there is great cause for rejoicing. Uh, there is also a great need of, of prayer uh, for the church to to be the family and community uh, for these people who have lost uh, everything else. And Jesus promises a beautiful thing to his disciples in the Gospels when he says that no one who has given up uh, fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and lands for his sake uh, will go without, uh, that they will receive tenfold. Um, and so uh, that promise uh, is realized, I believe, within, uh, within the church. Uh, so, uh, with that in mind, and also just with the needs in our nation and the needs even here locally, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we acknowledge uh, that You are our eternal God. You are unchanging. uh, That all of the the turmoil and strife of 2020 uh, has not uh, put You off guard. Uh, That the rising and falling of nations and kings and peoples uh, is... It's all a part of history and is all a part of your story and how you are at work in the world. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to be confident in that. That you would help us to be confident in you and not in ourselves. Confident in you and not in our, uh, not in our leaders, not in uh, political parties, uh, not in any solution that man can come up with, but in you and in you alone. Now, this does not mean, Lord, that we are inactive, uh, that we don't uh, take political action, that we're not at work in our communities, uh, but rather we do these things with hope, knowing that you are the one who bears fruit, both now and in eternity. Father, we do pray for our church, and we are mindful of what we have seen so far in Acts, that as the church was uh, threatened and opposed, she responded with prayer. And so, Lord, we respond to all the things that we face by seeking you in prayer. God, would you give us more and more a heart for prayer corporately together. We pray for those uh, in our church body uh, who are uh, facing, uh, struggling with injury uh, and illness. Lord, we pray for... uh, Eddie Hooper and his continued recovery. Lord, we pray for Miss Marlene and her recovery after uh, 
surgery to install a pacemaker. Father, we pray for uh, Zach and uh, as he has a, an ulcer on his eye. God, we pray that you would bring healing to him uh, and that he would experience recovery. Lord, we pray for the Gentry family that you would bring healing to them uh, as they struggle with illness uh, and others as well. Father, we pray, just like the early church prayed, that we would be bold witnesses. Uh, that we would that we would walk with you and know you uh, and tell of you to others. That Holy Spirit, you would empower us to do just that. Lord, we pray for our country uh, as COVID cases increase uh, and as uh, warnings, uh, dire warnings, begin to sound again. Lord, we pray. Uh, that you would give our leaders wisdom. Uh, that you, in fact, Lord, would actually, uh, that you would save some of our leaders. Those who do not know you would know you. That they might have the right perspective. That they would have a perspective of wisdom. Uh, that they would trust you. Father, we, uh, but we do pray for uh, a spirit of unity. God, we pray that you would, uh, that you would even bring peace to our country. Lord, uh, there are so many, so many deep rifts and so many issues. God, we pray that you would help us to know how to, how to walk in these days. Uh, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be, as your word says, uh, wise as serpents and yet innocent as doves. Lord, that our words uh, would bring peace, uh, that our actions would uh, be good deeds of mercy and service and love. Lord, and we pray that above all, you would give us love. And Father, we pray for our world. Lord, we pray for the people of Iran. God, we, we pray for strength and grace and perseverance for Christians who are persecuted in Iran, especially those who are jailed and wounded and tortured. God, would you, uh, would you bring justice in their cases? Lord, we, uh, we pray uh, for the Christians uh, in Iran that they would be able to live peaceful uh, and quiet lives in godliness and holiness as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 Lord that um, that as Christianity is seen as a threat to the established order uh, Lord we pray that uh, the truth of your word would be known um, Father we pray for continuing conversions uh, to Christianity both in Iran and across the Muslim world. Lord, we, pray, we praise you for um, the number of people who are coming to know you out of Islam. Uh, and we pray for those uh, people, God, as they, have, as they have forfeited family support, as many of them have forfeited livelihoods, as many of them experienced has experienced torture and even death. God, I'm reminded of uh, the different militant groups in uh, sub-Saharan or in uh, Saharan Africa uh, who are uh, literally killing Christians. God, we pray that you would protect uh, and that you would save uh, save those who are hostile to Christianity. May they see. Uh, your truth and your goodness through those that they seek to harm. Uh, would you do a good work there to uh, the fame of your glory? Uh, Lord, we bring all of these prayers before you uh, because of our Lord and Savior Jesus, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Alright, if you have a Bible, if you, uh, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 is where we're going to be this morning. And I would just uh, remind you of what we have seen so far. Um, as the church has grown, uh, so also she has experienced pushback from the religious authorities. Uh, this morning we're going to read the next, uh, the next section and, uh, and see how, how the church continues to follow Jesus into the world. So let's give our attention to Acts chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 32 uh, and read to chapter 5 verse 11. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Now... The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet." But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? And after it was was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father, this is a a difficult passage. Uh, If we're honest, it's probably one that we would rather skip over. There's lots of questions we have. This is not necessarily what we we expect uh, when we come to the Bible. And it's 
rightly terrifying. And so, God, we pray for your help. We pray that you would help us to see what you're saying to us in this passage, what it means for us, uh, and that you would uh, that you would transform us by it. And we pray you would do that by the power of your Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, uh, John Stott is a pastor and a commentator, a scholar, and, and when he writes about these, uh, and he writes in his commentary in the book of Acts, he says that if the, if the main actor of the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit, uh, from chapter 4 uh, till about chapter 7, it would seem that the, the main actor there, the chief character, is actually Satan. Uh, because as the church grows, right, we've seen the, the church filled with the Holy Spirit and grow on the day of Pentecost. And then we see what, uh, what Stock calls Satan's counterattacks against the church. And Satan's first counterattack, uh, as, as the church grows and encroaches on his kingdom of darkness, Satan's first attack against the church is one of just open persecution. Uh, arrests, threats, and violence. It's very crude, uh, but that is, that is Satan's first attack. And the, the wonderful thing that we see in response to that attack is that the church grows. As the church is persecuted, she does not shrink, she does not retreat, she does not withdraw, but she actually grows. That more people come to know Jesus, that Jesus' followers respond with boldness, right? They pray that God would help them keep going, they keep telling other people about Jesus, they keep doing good deeds of mercy and love, and so the church is growing. And so now Satan launches uh, his second his second mode of attack is moral compromise. Right, so this is not an enemy from outside of the church. This is actually an attack from within the church. Uh, you may know that um, treason is uh, is a crime that is punishable by death. Uh, and the reason that is the case is because uh, treason is a treason is a deadly crime to a state. Right? If you uh, if you uh, betray a state, uh, you actually are undermining uh, you are actually undermining that country or undermining that state. And so the state views that it's basically, it's basically an attack on the life of the state. And so the state views that with impunity. Uh, so it's interesting that. And yet, that's a very common. Uh, that's a very common thing, right? Espionage and uh, and treason. Well, here, uh, the, the church, we see the church under attack by the same thing. That there is an enemy within the church. Uh, and Satan is trying to bring down the church, not from without, but now from within. And what we have in this uh, passage is clearly a contrast. Right? We have a, a contrast between Barnabas on the one hand uh, and Ananias and Sapphira on the other hand. But it really goes deeper than that. Uh, it goes down to the spirits that animate those two people. Right? We see it's, it's really a contrast between the Holy Spirit, God Himself, and Satan. Uh, and so we're going to look at this passage under those two headings. Uh, first, we're going to see what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts and lives of people. And then we're going to contrast that with what Satan does in the hearts and lives of people, as exemplified in Ananias and Sapphira. So first, let's talk about what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts and lives of people. Luke tells us in verse 32 of chapter 4 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart 
and soul. Right, that they had this uncommon unity. They were knit together in heart and soul. Now, think about that for a second. That that sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Uh, that that kind of unity. Um, well, it sounds like a fairy tale, especially especially in our day. Um, but even maybe if you've grown up in church and been around church, this. Who wouldn't want this description to be true? And yet our experience seems to, to run in the other direction. That we are often not uh, together in heart and soul. Uh, but that was the description that Luke gave of the early church. This uncommon unity. How does, that, how does that happen? How does that come about? Well, first, it's a work of God. Right? God has created a new humanity. A new people. And He has done that. A new, he's created a new family in Jesus. And so what these people realize, and we see that at the very core of this new community, uh, Luke tells us that the apostles are continuing to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. So, so the Word is at the core of the community. The Word about Jesus is creating this new family in Jesus. And what these people realize that I don't think maybe we often do is that their relationship to Jesus and their relationships in Jesus supersede all the others. Their union to Jesus is the primary identity and they live in that. Their union, their relationships uh, in Jesus supersede all the others. We just talked about believers who come to Christ in hostile Muslim countries. What's happening there? Well, Jesus is severing their ties with their family. Severing, in fact, Jesus himself said that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. That he would divide uh, son from father, daughter from mother, right? That that's oftentimes professing Jesus cuts ties uh, with what is, uh, with, with the, the ties we used to have. It severs old relationships, but it creates new ones, And that's what we see happening here, that this new family, they realize that their identity in Christ supersedes everything else. And so it enables them to love each other. They love each other because they realize that God has loved them. So God's love for them flows out to their fellow believers. And so that's how, that's how uncommon unity is created. It's created by a work of God in the heart that flows out through the life. And we see that their uncommon unity leads to uncommon generosity. That because they're a new family, they treat each other like family in all the good ways. Right? Um, that, that when a need becomes known, those who have in the church sell some of what they have to meet the needs who do not have. And so oftentimes we, we like to talk about generosity, but we need to understand that the root of gospel generosity comes out of unity. Right? If we don't see one another as united in Jesus, then we will not be as prone to be generous to each other. Right? We'll have more of a mindset that, that, that holds on to our stuff. 
But their generosity flows out of their unity. And notice it doesn't flow out of obligation or duty. Right? There, there have been communities, there have been some people who have who have looked at these passages in, uh, in Acts and said, Ah, see, here, here's communism. Right, this is this is uh, this is where right. See, everybody puts all their stuff in the pool, and everybody gets a little bit. Right, these these people they didn't claim that their goods were their own, so we should do that. Right, this is this. Some have used these passages to it's kind of like a communal style living, but notice that nobody is doing this at gunpoint. Nobody is being forced to give up their goods. Rather, it is done out of, out of love. It is done out of mutual love, not out of obligation or duty. They're doing this because they are of one heart and soul. And notice also, in contrast to what we would call communism, uh, these things are not evenly dispersed. Right? Uh, rather, they, rather, rather, needs are met. So those who have need are those uh, who receive the gift. Right? Uh, things are given out according to need, not dispersed evenly among the whole population. And, and what's radical about this is that their generosity is so thorough that they actually eliminate need. It says that there's not a needy person among them. Now that's remarkable. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't persist that uh, a famine would actually hit Jerusalem uh, within the next few, several years. But what's interesting is that when a famine hits Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem becomes poor, by that point, churches have been planted around the Mediterranean world. And so we read, for instance, in 2 Corinthians uh, and, and later on in the book of Acts, uh, where Paul is actually collecting money from other churches to give to the church in Jerusalem as they have need. So, so the, as the family grows, the generosity is meant to continue. And again, as I said, at the center of it, there's the Word. The apostles continue to bear witness about Jesus' resurrection. Now that seems kind of odd to me. Why, why, are, why does Luke put that in there? Why is that central to what's going on with all this unity and generosity business? Well, think about it for just a minute. Uh, if Jesus has been raised from the dead then a new reality has come about. Think about, think about the reasons why we're prone to hoard. Uh, you know, for some, for some reason, my, I've got a couple of my sons who are hoarders. Um, and I remember doing this as a kid too. Like you would like find, I would, I would walk to school uh, in the snow, six miles uphill both ways. Uh, right, I would, I would walk to school and as I walked, like I would find, I would find trash. And I would think for some reason that that trash was cool and I needed to take it home uh, and, you know, keep it in my bedroom. Uh, and I have kids who do this, right? That, that we don't throw away anything, we have to keep everything. Why, why do we want to keep everything? The last time you went through and tried to clean out your house, why did you, why, if you've ever gone through and tried to clean out your house, uh, what's, what's, what's the thought that you had when you, un, when you opened up that box that you sealed, you know, three moves ago and haven't unsealed since then? What do you think? We might need that. Yeah. We got, that might come in handy one day. Right? 
We might need that grill that mom's had in her in a box in her house, right, David? Uh, so. There you go. Um, we might need that one day. And so we hold on to it. Right? We, we live as if this is all there is. We hold on to things because we're afraid that if we lose them, we won't get them back. But the resurrection of Jesus tells us that a new order has begun. That there is more than just this. That because Jesus has come back from the dead, and listen, I think most of us would agree, uh, would, would agree like, sure, yeah, there's eternal life to come, one day, someday. But that's, that's a ways off. You know, that's, that, 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 that has significance for some time in the future. But right now, we've got to get while the getting's good. We've got to build all we can build. Because we don't know about tomorrow. And the resurrection of Jesus says, no, we know about tomorrow. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a truth for the future, some eternity far, far away, but it actually says that new life begins now. That Jesus is risen and reigning now. And that means that I don't have to hold on with a white-knuckle grip to what I own, but rather I can open my hands And say, Lord Jesus, how would you have me use this for your glory? How would you have me use this for your people? Give me a a love for people that supersedes love for stuff. Let's live in this and not in that. And so we see that this early church is strong in word... And they're strong indeed. They're not one-dimensional. Right? We have a tendency to be either strong in word or strong in deed. But the early church was not. They were strong in both. But as they continued to believe the gospel, they continued to meet the needs of those around them, both within the community, but we're also going to see the uh, just after the passage we read, starting in verse 12, that... that People are coming from outside the community. They, they come to the apostles. They bring sick, they're, they're sick um, people to the apostles for healing. So there are deeds of mercy within the church, but also spreading outside the church. And that's confirming the good news, right? Words of grace, uh, excuse me, works of grace confirm the word of grace. And this is where we meet Barnabas. Uh, his real name is Joseph. He's a Levite. So that means he comes from a priestly family. And actually, uh, he is from an island called Cyprus. But he has come to Jerusalem. Uh, and the apostles have nicknamed him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And he actually is a very pivotal figure in Acts. We're going to talk more about him later. But Barnabas right here is introduced as a good example, as an example of generosity fueled by unity, fueled by love. So that's how the Holy Spirit works in the hearts and lives of people. He creates love that binds us together, that enables us to serve one another. Now let's contrast that with what Satan does in the hearts and lives of people and how Satan tries to destroy the church. In opposition to Barnabas, we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. And Luke uses some of the same words to describe them. Uh, They both uh, agree... uh, uh, 
uh, we're told they both agree to sell some property. Right? Barnabas sells some property, Ananias and Sapphira sell some property, and both of them bring the proceeds to the apostles' feet uh, for distribution. Uh, they uh, presumably uh, in some kind of worship service. So like, they're like Barnabas in those respects, and yet there's a key difference that they decide to only bring a part of what they said they were going to bring. Now, I want you to notice, and we need to read this very carefully, this passage is not about how much you give. That is not the sin that Ananias and Sapphira are guilty of. Right? There was not an established threshold that everybody had to live up to. Right? It wasn't that it wasn't that everybody was like, alright, we're at ten percent, but you guys are only at five. So God's going to strike you dead. Right, that is that is not what's going on here. Right, in fact, when when Peter confronts Ananias, he asks him and he he confirms that, hey, the property before it was sold was yours. You did not have to sell it. And when you sold it, what you did with the proceeds was up to you. So even how you used the money was left to your discretion. So the message of this passage is not give or God will strike you down. The issue here is in their hearts. What Ananias and Sapphira do is they basically agree to give one thing, uh, but they hold some back. And so they don't they don't keep what they had agreed uh, what they had agreed to give, and and really the and really the key is the reason, right? It would seem that rather than bring their gifts to God in worship to serve the needs of others, they're actually bringing their gifts in front of others to impress others. They want to, in other words, they want to be like Barnabas on the outside, but not on the inside. John Stott says it this way, They wanted the credit and prestige of generosity without the inconvenience of it. That's what's going on here. They had chosen to hold back um, but but had but had deceived had tried to deceive the church in how much they were giving. They were saying, "Yeah, we sold the property for a thousand dollars," when in reality maybe they sold it for two thousand. So they said, "Well, no, 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 we sold it for a thousand dollars, and we're giving all thousand to you." But Peter says, "No, that's not true." Right, and that's that's what we call hypocrisy. Saying you're doing one thing while believing another. And Peter says that that doesn't come from the Holy Spirit, but that comes from Satan himself. In fact, he's really blunt. He says Ananias has been filled with Satan. In verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Ananias and Sapphira's desire 
uh, to look one way when in reality they were not is actual, and, and a desire to lie we can maybe even say that that sin is twofold but their desire to, to hold back also led them uh, that there, there's the sin of hypocrisy um, or the sin of greed or whatever that leads to lying but that all springs from Satan uh, and if you're familiar with the Bible story, uh, this is not the first time that Satan has appeared. Uh, Satan's name he means the adversary or the accuser. Uh, he is God's persistent enemy and he is the persistent enemy of God's people. He is the troubler of God's people. He hates unity. He hates love. He loves disunity. He loves strife. He loves discord. And when we sow those seeds, we are acting more like Satan than the Holy Spirit. We are following a different spirit than the one who should indwell us. Satan loves false worship. He loves hypocrisy. He loves it when we're double-minded, aiming to glorify ourselves rather than God. That is who is at work in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira and in their lives. Now, I struggle when I read this passage. Uh, in fact, the first question that one of the first questions I have in reading it is, really, that sin? Like that? That's what caused you to to judge Ananias and Sapphira was. Was hypocrisy? Was was bad heart motives? I mean, how, how often, how often have I wanted to appear one way, uh, and yet been another? Right? This would this would seem, if I can be so blunt, this would seem rather garden variety. This doesn't seem like one of the biggies, uh, and that shows just how little we esteem our own sin in God's sight. Uh, and how seriously God takes sin. Uh, but what's going on here? Why does God strike down Ananias and Sapphira? And, and make no mistake about it, it's, it's God. I mean, the means by which they die are not clear. We don't know if they were old in age, they had a heart trouble or, what, or whatever. The, the means are unclear, but it is very clear that this is a judgment from God. Why does God move so swiftly against Ananias and Sapphira? Well, this isn't the first time in the Bible that this happens. Uh, a couple of uh, passages that come to mind... One out of Leviticus. Uh, there are two priests named Nadab and Abihu. Uh, they are sons of Aaron the high priest. Uh, and the tabernacle is brand new. Uh, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit has moved into the tabernacle. God is dwelling with His people. It is the realization of uh, centuries of promise. And then Nadab and Abihu walk into God's presence, but they walk into God's presence uh, worshiping with uh, strange fire, is how the Hebrew puts it. They, they basically have decided to go against God's commands and worship out of their own desires. Uh, they they want to do it their way. And so they waltz into God's presence 
God strikes them dead. Another episode that actually has a strong parallel to this one uh, is the story of Achan in the book of Joshua. Um, Joshua is the story of how the Israelites conquer the promised land. And you may remember the story that to get into the promised land, they have to go through Jericho. And what happens at Jericho is actually they don't even lift a finger. They do this kind of weird parade thing for the whole week where they just march around. um, And then on the seventh day, they march around and blow the horn and yell. And God brings the walls down. So, So God conquers Jericho. And what the people are told to do is to devote all of Jericho to God. They are to destroy, and I know this, is, this requires a whole other sermon, maybe even the Sunday school class, but this is, this is the reality of holy war. Okay? They, they devote all of Jericho, all its people, and all its goods to destruction. They destroy it and devote it to God. That's actually an act of worship. Now, now that seems crazy. We don't have time to really dive into that. But they are told not to gather any plunder from Jericho. All of it is devoted to destruction. Well, Achan decides uh, he sees some good stuff there in the pile as they're conquering the city. And, you know, I kind of like that coat. I kind of like... Maybe I can get a little bit of that gold. That looks nice, right? So Achan decides he sees some things that he wants. And he keeps some back. In fact, it's the exact same word that Luke uses here. Uh, In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Achan keeps back some plunder from Jericho. And what happens is Israel is defeated at the next city, Ai. And when they go to God to find out why, why their progress has been stopped when God promised that it wouldn't be, he basically points them to Achan. And Achan is executed uh, and the plunder is burned. Now, what what is all that telling us what what are we supposed to glean from that how do those things inform this passage and what is this passage telling us well for starters we would say that this passage tells us that there is continuity between the new testament and the old testament but there are people who would say and and you may be in this camp you would say well the old testament is uh, that that god in the old testament is a god of wrath and judgment and the god in the new testament is one of mercy and peace And my response to that is you need to read a little more closely. Because God's grace and mercy are all over the Old Testament. God recites His love for Israel over and over and over and over and over again. From from, from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. God's grace is all over the Old Testament. And God's judgment is all over the New Testament. Like you can't even get away from Jesus without hearing about God's judgment. You have this episode. Go read 1 Corinthians. Good grief, read the book of Revelation. Right? God is the same in the new and the old. He is the same God. And what we learn is this God is holy. That God's grace does not negate His holiness. And God's holiness does not negate His grace. In fact, His grace is a part of His holiness. But God is not some two-dimensional paper God. He is not a kitten, a cute, cuddly little kitten that we like to play with. No, He is real. 
And His holiness, if you are on the wrong side of it, is absolutely terrifying and deadly. We would all agree, and I think I've used this illustration before, that fire is a good thing. Right? If we don't have fire, we can't cook. If we don't have fire, our cars don't run. Right? Learning, learning about fire has been crucial to human development. But we need to take a step further and say that learning how to harness and control fire, that fire within limits is good. But, but when fire is not treated properly, what happens? It destroys and it kills. So a good thing is also a dangerous thing. And so we see that God's holiness is incredibly good, but it is also incredibly lethal if you do not treat it with respect. So this God is holy. And because He is holy, He does not wink at sin. He does not say, eh, it's fine. He forgives sin. But He forgives sin at great cost to Himself. God does not play with sin. And therefore we should not play with it either. We should not take it lightly either. And what we see even more than that is that this holy God will also defend His holy people. That the connection between those stories in the Old Testament and this one is that God is protecting the integrity of His new community. God knows that if Ananias and Sapphira get a leg in here, right? If this kind of hypocrisy is uh, sown into the early church, then this movement will disintegrate before it gets very far. And so God makes a statement here at the very beginning. Just as He did with Nadab and Abihu, just as He did with Achan. God makes a statement that you are my people... And I dwell in your midst. See, that, that's why this happens, right? When, when, when Peter says, right, Ananias and Sapphira, you haven't lied to, to me. You haven't lied to men. You've lied to God. In trying to deceive the community, they're actually trying to deceive the Holy Spirit who gives birth to the community. That's, that's the issue. A holy God lives in the midst of His people. And He will defend His people at all costs. Right? This holy God defends His holy people. The church is God's temple, God's dwelling place. That has serious implications. It's why Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, You are a temple, a holy temple to God. God doesn't dwell in a building. He dwells in us. And that has serious implications. Ananias and Sapphira are judged because they are attempting to destroy God's holy people. And I want you to notice that Ananias, uh, or rather Sapphira, has an option. She has, she, has, she has a moment. Peter gives her a chance to repent. So even there is grace. She has a chance to repent and she chooses not to. And so she faces the same fate as her husband. So 
It's tough uh, to be self-righteous over Ananias and Sapphira. Think how often have I caved to social pressure? How often am I motivated to live a lie, to lie out of fear of other people's opinions? So let's close by asking this question. What's the difference? What's the difference between Barnabas and Ananias? Because clearly I don't want to be... I want to be one and not the other. Clearly we want to be a church of one and not the other. We want, to, we want the Holy Spirit to be, to be active in our hearts and lives. We don't, want to be, uh, we don't want to be filled with Satan. We don't want to be doing things uh, that Satan delights in. We want to be doing things that God, God delights in. How do we do that? What's the difference? Well, I don't think it's because Barnabas is sinless. I don't think it's because Barnabas is perfect. I think it's actually fear. The right kind of fear. Barnabas has integrity. And Ananias does not. Because Barnabas fears the Lord. He knows who God is. And that enables him to be honest. The right kind of fear leads to the right kind of honesty. Right? Ananias aims to deceive the church because he doesn't fear God. It's not that he has, it's not that he has too much fear. He doesn't have enough of the right kind. He has a, he has a small view of who God is. And that leads him... In fact, he has a very large view of who other people are, right? He, he fears the opinions of man rather than of God, whereas Barnabas seems to be motivated out of a right fear of God. That's where we want to be. The passage actually ends on a hopeful note. If you look at verse 11... It says, great fear, now this may sound like a bad thing, but actually it's a good thing. Great fear came upon the whole church. Now that may not strike you as odd, but that's actually the first time the word church is used in the book of Acts. And it's a translation of the word ekklesia, and that means the gathering. The assembly. That's how uh, it's used in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament loan word. The word church is used for the first time at the end of this episode. And that's important because it tells us that God continues to gather His people. That the gathering, which is what the church is, the gathering does not fall apart because Ananias and Sapphira lied. The gathering does not fall apart because the religious leaders are persecuting us. The people of God continue to trust in and follow Jesus. Satan's attempt to destroy the fellowship through moral compromise is unsuccessful. And that's really good news for sinners like you and me. Because God is committed to the growth of His people. May we have the kind of fear that leads to love, that leads to service. Let's pray. Lord, simply put, we want to be 
I want to be like Barnabas. I don't want to be like Ananias. What I want to be, we want to be people of integrity, not hypocrisy. And that means that we begin knowing that you are a holy God and that you have gone to great lengths to rescue us from our sin, to make us new so that we may love you and love those around us. God, our prayers that you would make cause these things to be in our midst. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.